Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. Did you write about it in the paper at all? I don't think I did. There's things in a little town you just kind of leave alone. For Victor that night to leave the bar without a coat or his phone or anything else was just very, very unlike Victor. And and that's just a mystery to everybody in this town. The first time I heard about the perplexing death of a man named Victor Newberry, I was drinking a beer in a dark and stale bar in western North Dakota. This was in September of 2016, while I was attending a fall festival celebration in a little town named Hebron. The rural community was a home to less than 900 people, and at the time, I was one of them. This festival is an annual event with a parade, street dances, cakewalks, vendor shows, and other activities for both kids and grown-ups. It was during this grown-up activity of day drinking in a bar that I struck up a conversation with a rancher named Phil, although that's not his real name. Phil told me the story of this man's death. He explained that this man named Victor had moved to North Dakota from Georgia several years earlier. He lived in a small town named Glenola, North Dakota, population 800 or so, just 15 miles from where we were sitting at the time. On an early morning in December of 2014, Victor was found lying dead in the snow next to his vehicle just off of a gravel road. It was a lonely and quiet spot, Phil told me, about a half a mile outside of the town of Glen Ullen. Now, Phil is not a friend of mine exactly, more of an acquaintance, but I do know that he likes his whiskey and he's known around the area for his barstool storytelling. Someone once told me that Phil is just a drunk dumbass, but I never found him to be dumb exactly, nor an ass, although, yes, occasionally drunk. To me, he was always just a middle-aged, weathered cowboy with an entertaining sense of humor and an arsenal of tall tales, stories that resonated more like fables and fairy tales, anything to hold an audience. Of course, Phil or no Phil, if you're looking for tall tales, there's no better place to find one than in a dark, small-town bar in western North Dakota. So, Phil is not an outlier out here. He's just a little more eccentric and animated than most barflies. If most people take his words with a grain of salt, I took them with a heaping tablespoon. So, as Phil told me this story, I crossed my arms in subtle defiance, and I offered only a skeptical ear. Phil explained that the cops who had investigated Victor's death claimed that Victor had been so drunk that he had fallen out of his vehicle when he stopped along the side of the road to urinate. He fell down, he hit his head, and then he froze to death under a Midwestern Milky Way. But here's the thing, Phil told me. That's a bunch of crap, and everybody knows it. 
Phil explained that the spot where Victor died was in the opposite direction of Victor's home, and Victor had no friends down that road, nor any other reason to be out there whatsoever. It made no sense, he said. But more importantly, there was this. Phil said that on the night Victor died, Victor had been in an altercation in a bar in Glen Ullen, and the cops came to break it up. And then the next morning, Phil says, what, they just find Victor dead out north of town in a place he has no business being? He was murdered, he got whacked, and everyone knows it. Even the cops know it. I took another sip of my beer and I asked Phil why the cops wouldn't do anything about a murder. Phil lowered his voice then and leaned into me a little closer. I'll tell you why, he said. His remaining teeth peeked out at me from behind a thick and crusty mustache. They were crooked and stained yellow from decades of tobacco use. His eyes squinted as if he needed to concentrate, but also as if suggesting to me that I too should concentrate and listen closely. Because, he said, the guys who killed him are connected to the mafia out of Boston. Do you think the sheriff in this little county is going to take on organized crime? I don't remember if I answered his rhetorical question or not, but before parting that evening, I did ask Phil if an autopsy had been done on this man named Victor. I'm not even sure why I asked him at that point, because a part of me wondered if this guy Victor was even a real person in the first place, and I doubted that anyone had died outside of Glen Ullen in this fashion. It was all Phil fairy tale to me at that point. An autopsy, Phil pleaded. Are you kidding me? They cremated him faster than green grass through a goose, he said. It was a cover-up, believe me. I didn't believe Phil. Instead, a little later, I walked home from the fall festival, fell into bed, and into slumber with very little thought of a man named Victor Newberry, a man I wasn't even sure ever existed in the first place, and if he had, certainly was not murdered by organized crime in a sleepy little boring town on the Dakota Prairie. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. In the morning, though, armed with a mug of coffee and a smidgen of curiosity, I searched the internet quickly, and I did find two or three brief articles about this man's death. Phil had at least managed to get some of the facts right. Victor was a real person, and yes, he had died. But despite what Phil thought, an autopsy had been performed. The Bismarck Tribune had this to say about the event. Morton County Sheriff Kyle Kurtzmeyers ruled out foul play as a cause of death for 51-year-old Victor Newberry of Glen Ullen, found dead outside his vehicle on December 27th. The autopsy found that Newberry died of hypothermia due to prolonged exposure to cold outdoor weather, Kirchmeyer said. The sheriff added that alcohol played a role in Newberry's death. 
The case has been officially classified as an unattended death and is closed, Kirchmeier said. The two or three other articles I found just rehashed this same information. I wasn't surprised that Phil was wrong about the autopsy. If anything, I was surprised how much he got right. But for me, that was the end of the story, really. The medical examiner obviously did not find any signs of a homicide, and the sheriff ruled out foul play. Case closed, end of story, and end of my curiosity. I made a mental note that I would politely inform Phil that he might want to check his sources a little better the next time. I thought I'd run into him soon enough, but as it turned out, that would not occur for almost two years. It was in the early summer of 2018 when I finally did see him again. It was in Glen Ullen, North Dakota, the place where Phil lives and where Victor Newberry died. I reminded him about the story, and we talked for a moment. I let him know that I'd found the newspaper articles online and that he was wrong. An autopsy had been performed. Well, he said, just because it says that in the paper doesn't make it true. Besides, he added, what makes you think the coroner wasn't in on the cover-up? I let out a sigh, and I tried to talk some sense into Phil. I reminded him that small towns like Glen Ullen are renowned for everyone knowing everyone else's business. Conspiracies, on the other hand, require secrets to be kept. I pointed out, too, how absurd it all sounded. After all, what in the world would the Boston mob be doing in Glen Ullen, North Dakota, a little agricultural town on the prairie? Phil took a step closer to me and shook his index finger in my face. Fuck all that, he said. They whacked him. You don't know the half of it. I became frustrated. I probed Phil for more information about who had supposedly killed Victor and why, and so on. But suddenly, good old loudmouth Phil clammed up completely and didn't have anything more to say. During the following days and weeks, I started to think about this man named Victor Newberry. I wondered if he had a family, loved ones. How would they feel if they knew that someone like Phil was walking around making these claims, telling stories and captivating audiences with his tales of Victor? I realized that there were two things that bugged me about it all. First of all, most likely Victor was not a victim of foul play, in which case it felt, I don't know, disrespectful somehow to be spreading this cheap rumor around. And secondly, if Victor really was killed, and if everyone knew about it, as Phil claimed, then in that case it was even more absurd for people to be just talking about it on a bar stool and not doing anything about it. I admit that at the time I didn't really know exactly what a person would do or could do. I only knew that it did not sound right or feel right to do nothing. These two concerns began to occupy my mind more and more, and in a way it was a good thing too, because my mind was trying to not think about some other things at the time. Which brings us to what I now realize was the final straw, or perhaps the true catalyst, that propelled me into this story about Victor Newberry. This final straw was a product of the times we live in, the zeitgeist of now. We all know that the United States has become divided on many issues, but there's a new trend of disagreement happening that confuses and concerns me more than any other issue. This is the concept of truth versus fake news versus personal interpretations of facts. By the time I heard people saying things like, your facts are not my facts, I tuned out. 
I had to. I turned off the news, turned off my TV, and I began to back out of the room. Because to live in a world where there are no accepted facts anymore, where actual facts can be brushed aside and disregarded at the mercy of mere opinions, denounced as lies or false or fake, no matter how much proof is provided, that is not a world I want to see or live in, or at least it's not a world I'm able to navigate. So, instead of living in it, I excused myself from the American table for a while, and I decided I would dine alone from now on. It was in this void that Victor's death invaded my thoughts. I realized I wanted to know exactly what happened to him, and I hoped focusing on that might help me forget these other things. But of course, it all backfired in the most fantastic and meaningful manner. I understood immediately that to paint the true story about Victor Newberry's life and death, I would need a palette covered in facts. But then I was back at the beginning again, because if my facts are not your facts, or Phil's facts, or the Sheriff Department's facts, then what does any of this mean anymore? How can we ever arrive at a truth? I wanted to find out what happened to Victor for his family, but I needed to find out what happened to him for myself. It was my displaced and temporary surrogate life. I thought that if I could just retrace and scrutinize Victor's every last moment, hour by hour and minute by minute, in this tiny little place on the prairie, I might demonstrate to Phil and reaffirm to myself all those things that make the world still make sense. My faith that facts still exist, they are not pliable, they are not the same thing as opinions, and anyone, including me and you, can still go out and discover real truths. I walked into this journey with many assumptions. I assumed there had never been any altercation at a bar the night Victor died, and I assumed I would find zero East Coast connections to this story. Mostly, though, I assumed that understanding Victor's death would be straightforward and that it would come quickly, simply, and easily, with few surprises. As it turned out, I was wrong about just about everything. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, Real Stories from the True North. Season 1, the story of Victor Newberry, is one man's personal quest to explain another man's perplexing death. What happened exactly to Victor Newberry of Glen Ellen, North Dakota, found dead next to his vehicle in December of 2014? My name is James Wolner. Music by Julia Kent. Visit dakotaspotlight.com for more information, suggest stories for future seasons, submit tips and questions, see photographs, and sign up for the newsletter. Imagine you wake up one morning and you realize that, despite everything you might have learned about the origin of the universe, in school or in your church or elsewhere, feels suddenly irrelevant. Never mind if everything started with the Big Bang 14 billion years ago or if God painted it all in six days with a few elegant strokes of hand. Imagine that the full history of the world feels far away for you, 
and instead, all you can think about is a minuscule sliver of time, a lousy 600 minutes or so, just those 10 last hours of a man's life, a man you never met or knew, and yet you now cannot forget. Imagine you've asked about 20 people what they know about this man's death, and you've been given at least half as many answers. It was a drug deal gone bad. It was a mafia hit. He was killed by a jealous girlfriend. It was carbon monoxide poisoning. He overdosed. The cops never looked into it, and it was a cover-up. Imagine almost all of these 20 people have warned you, warned you not to look into this, and they've laughed at you too when you said you'd just go to the sheriff and ask him what happened. They won't tell you anything is all you've heard. Imagine you feel stuck in this, overflowing with questions yet running empty on answers. What would you do and where would you start? Let me tell you. You struggle at first with questions and considerations. You remember your acquaintance Phil and how he used or abused the story of Victor's death to hold an audience, probably just to feel a little less lonely each night in his remote and sparsely populated corner of the world. And then you question your own motives. Are you nothing more than this, you ask yourself? And then a fog of doubt descends and clouds your vision. But in the end, the fog clears, and the bottom line is right there in front of you, so ever-present. The bottom line, you conclude, is a man died. A man died, and there is apparent widespread and serious uncertainty about what happened. The story, you realize, deserves to find its final resting place. And then you think of your own daughters, and you shake and shudder at the mere thought of one of their lives ending too soon, for any reason whatsoever, of course, but you can't even bear to imagine a fate wandering the planet without knowing exactly what had taken your precious little girl. That too is part of your bottom line, and you hope that if you were not around yourself to find out what happened to your daughter, maybe someone else would, especially if people were talking openly about foul play and then simply shrugging their shoulders and going on about their daily business, frying eggs each morning in a crusty skillet, driving to work, humming their favorite songs, harvesting corn, or falling asleep on the couch in the dark with Netflix flashing across their closed eyelids. So then you cut yourself a deal and you make a plan. The deal is that you will not jump fences to tell this story without pre-approval of at least one of Victor's loved ones. Trespassing through his family's territory, you know, would feel wrong. But if by chance they too are looking for answers and they open the gate for you and welcome you onto their property, then, and only then, will you journey forward. That's the deal. And if you ever get that far, well, then you have a plan waiting. The plan is to start with the autopsy because, in a way, you think the autopsy is the master key to the puzzle and it will tell you how Victor died and everything will come together neatly and cleanly and quickly, all at once. And I know one thing about my dad, he may have loved his alcohol, but he also loved his life. So just knowing him, 
Um, I've never seen him to a point to where he couldn't handle or he couldn't function from the level of alcohol he took in. And I have seen this man consume large amounts of alcohol. I once heard a detective say on TV that Facebook was the best tool to ever come along for law enforcement investigations. He had located several perpetrators through Facebook. He forgot to mention that it's not just a tool for law enforcement, but for private investigators, reporters, investigative journalists, stalkers, employment recruiters, and anyone looking for someone, or friends of someone, or just a way in to a circle of people. One morning in August of 2018, I jumped on Facebook to see if I could find some of Victor's family members. I typed in the name Victor Newberry, and suddenly there he was. Victor Newberry, Glen Olin, North Dakota. In his profile picture, Victor was wearing a Pittsburgh Steelers cap, and he was looking into the camera. He wore a white t-shirt. In that photo, he looked Latino to me, but in another photo, he looked like he might be black. From the very beginning, then, any and all attempts to put Victor, his life, and his death into simple categories or boxes seemed doomed to fail. Searching his friends by the name Newberry, I found four. There were two Facebook accounts for a Desiree Newberry, probably one and the same. There was one for a J.R. Newberry and one for someone named Felicia. I looked at J.R.'s account. It was hard to say how old this person might be, but I sent him a Facebook message. Hello there, I wrote. My name is James. I'm looking for family members of Victor Newberry. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? The next day, J.R. Newberry replied with three words. What's going on? I attempted to explain why I was reaching out to him, and he responded, I'm his son. J.R. lives in Georgia. I asked him if I could give him a call. Hello? This is uh, James, uh... From Facebook there. Hey, how you doing, Jess? I'm good. How are you today? I spoke with JR, whose name is Johnny, for only a couple minutes that day. Johnny was on the road. He works as a foreman for a national moving group, so he's often traveling. He did at least make it clear that the cause of his father's death was still on his mind. I've been like, I mean, I've had my concerns about it, but I mean, not being able to be there, know everything, know everybody. It's kind of hard to, I guess, like, have a firm understanding of anything. He also told me that he had, in fact, lived in North Dakota for a short time when he had worked for his father, who ran a business pouring concrete. He knew people in Glen Ullen. We made arrangements to talk on the phone another day when he was not working and traveling. Do you remember the first time or where you were or anything when you heard your father had passed away? Um, yes, I was uh, actually in East Point, Georgia. Um, around uh, Camp Creek area, visiting a friend. Um, I received a phone call on my phone, and basically my grandmother had told me that my father had passed on. That first day, what did they tell you had happened? What information did they have? Really no information given at that point. We were still waiting on all the sheriff's office to do their investigation, the coroner's report. Um, only thing we knew at that point was that my dad had passed on, and they said that he had froze to death. That's what they were thinking. Um, the sheriff's office contacted my mom because she was the one that was basically handling everything as they were still legally married. 
and they just basically called maybe about two and a half weeks after he passed, and they basically summed it up to him just being inebriated to the point where he fell out of a truck and froze to death. Do you remember them saying he was stuck or he just drove off the road? Did you say, did they say anything else? Um, they said that basically he, were, he was parked wherever he was. Um, and at, I guess while he was parked there, he passed out and fell out of the truck and, and froze, froze to death. Well, let's back up a little bit. You told me earlier that you lived in North Dakota for a short while. Is that correct? I did. Um, we, he brought me on to help him build an ethanol plant. So I was on his uh, concrete crew um, learning how to form and finish concrete. I got there in May, and I didn't leave until January of the next year. It was 2005. Johnny said that he wanted to tell me a story. It was a memory of his, an observation about his father. He said it had been on his mind ever since he'd been told his father had died from drinking too much and then passing out in the cold. One night after finishing their day of work. Um, we were at a bar. Um, we get off work a little early. Um, so we all went to the bar, me, my father, and probably about 30, 35, 40 guys from the job site that all worked with us. That night happened to be Victor's birthday. Johnny had never beaten his father at a game of pool during his whole life. So he got an idea. So I figured, hey, it's his birthday. I've got a little help. Um, there's some guys from the job. They're all buying him drinks. I'm going to buy him drinks. And I'm going to try to get him so drunk that I can finally win my first game of pool. A lot of alcohol was bought and consumed that night. It was like round after round. You know, guys were coming up, you know, trying to celebrate his birthday with him. And they would buy a round for the crew and, you know, obviously buy one for my father. Johnny even bought his dad a $100 glass of Crown Royal whiskey, which was Victor's favorite drink. They come out with like this super tall glass full of Crown Royal and he was just ecstatic. But his plan didn't work. No matter how much alcohol my father consumed that night, it just seemed as if it was the exact opposite. The more he drank, the better he shot. So needless to say, I never got my win. To be honest with you, I mean, I've watched my father drink from sunup to sundown, and I've never seen him in a position to where he could not physically function for himself. It just didn't make sense to me for someone to say that's the reason my father died. Um, he was too inebriated to control himself and pick himself up. And I know one thing about my dad. He may have loved his alcohol, but he also loved his life. I wasn't physically there, but just knowing him, um, I've never seen him to a point to where he couldn't handle or he couldn't function from the level of alcohol he had took in. And I have seen this man consume large amounts of alcohol. Dakota Spotlight will be back in a moment. One note about Victor's private life at the time to help avoid confusion. Victor Newberry had been separated from his wife Nikita for many years, and although they had never legally been divorced, they both lived their lives as if they had been. After your father passed away, did anyone from North Dakota contact you? Did you have any friends up here who called you? And um, I, I received three phone calls. Um, one from Donna Shantz, um, his ex-girlfriend. Uh, we were actually pretty close. She even worked on a couple of the job sites with us. Um, uh, a guy that he worked for or was working with named Ray Haverloo called and expressed his uh, condolences and stuff like that and what he had possibly heard. 
Um, and the third call was actually from his girlfriend at the time. And I don't remember her name. I don't really know much about her. The information that Donna gave me was that she had basically heard that there had been some type of um, altercation possibly, but nobody could say if or like if it happened or not. You know, it was just kind of like a, a rumor type thing, and she was expressing that to me. Um, and she also was explaining to me the situation between the girlfriend and um, how she was basically handling everything as far as uh, his belongings, his personal possessions, and stuff like that. Um, but it really meant a lot to have those people call out and at least know somebody did care for him, you know? Did Donna say who uh, your father might have had an altercation with? She didn't. She, she said she wasn't there, but, you know, she was just hearing the talk of the town and everybody kind of discussing it. Do you feel like you have a satisfactory answer for how your father died? I mean, realistically, no, I don't. Based on what they're saying, I honestly, it, it didn't give me any type of closure, and I, don't, I didn't believe that's how my father really passed. After I got off the phone with Johnny Newberry that day, I looked down at my notes. Johnny had given me his blessing to pursue this story. In fact, he said he would call his sister Desiree, too, because he felt that I should speak with her if I wanted to learn more about their father, which I did. The deal I'd made with myself was that I would not tell this story without his loved one's support, and now, suddenly, I had it. Having made it this far, the plan was to start with the autopsy. During that conversation, Johnny told me he had never seen the autopsy report himself, and he didn't have a copy. We discussed getting our hands on one. In fact, I had already looked into it and discovered that a North Dakota law, specifically ND Century Code 230105.5, states that requests for autopsy reports may only be granted to specific individuals or organizations and under certain circumstances. For example, an insurance company, upon proof that the deceased's life was covered by a policy issued by the company if there is no active criminal investigation, or a physician or hospital who treated the deceased immediately prior to death and there is no active criminal investigation, and then the Food and Drug Administration, the National Transportation Safety Board, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and any other federal or state agency with authority to obtain an autopsy report to investigate a death resulting from the decedent's type of injury or illness. And finally, the decedent's personal representative and to the decedent's spouse, child, or parent upon proof of the relationship if there is no active criminal investigation. That part about if there is no active criminal investigation seemed to be key. And according to the newspaper articles I had read, Victor's case was officially closed. And Johnny Newberry is, of course, Victor's child, so it seemed we had a good chance of getting a hold of the autopsy report. On that call, I gathered his home address, his father's birth date, which was October 27, 1963, and some other information, and jotted it down on my notebook. I submitted the request right away, a simple online form at the North Dakota State Medical Examiner's website. I punched in Johnny's info form, hit the send button, and then we prepared ourselves for weeks, or maybe even months, of waiting. 
Due to the unknown length of this waiting period, suddenly my plan to deal with the autopsy first seemed a little inefficient. What would I do in the meantime, if anything? I looked again at my notes from my conversation with Johnny. I had written, Donna Schantz-V's ex-girlfriend-called Johnny after V died said there was an altercation. And then on the next line, Ray Havelock, friend of V's. And then, V's girlfriend at the time, name, question mark, dealt with V's belongings after his death. I looked at this list of names and considered trying to contact them to continue on this journey. But I resisted and stuck with my original plan. I did not want to disturb these individuals or drag them through potentially painful memories of their friend's passing, that is, not unless it would be essential to finding out the truth of Victor's death. And I wouldn't know that until we got the autopsy report, which I fully expected would tell us the story in a neat little package. And so, instead of reaching out to Donna Schantz and the others, I decided I would learn a little more about autopsies, coroners, forensic science, and pathology. I was surprised by what I learned, and I think it's going to surprise you too. Next time on Dakota Spotlight. Can you fingerprint it? And he goes, well, this isn't like CSI Miami or CSI, you know, New York or whatever. It just doesn't happen like that. If there is no mandatory regulation or mandatory things that they have to do, you know, if there's any doubt or question, there should be a second opinion. And then you have a family that looks at it, and it's typed on this neat paper, and there's this official seal, and they say, well, I guess they know what they're doing. You know, everyone calls these things rulings, um, you know, that, that he comes to a ruling on the matter. And he himself has said that he believes that they're classifications and that they don't mean anything when it comes to legal proceedings. You have been listening to Dakota Spotlight Season 1, the story of Victor Newberry. Music provided graciously by Julia Kent. Visit juliakent.com to learn more about Julia and her amazing work. Dakota Spotlight is produced by Everything Midwestern LLC of North Dakota. My name is James Wallner. Visit dakotaspotlight.com for more information. If you find yourself enjoying this podcast and would like to help support it and maybe make possible a season two, visit dakotaspotlight.com support to find out the many ways you can help out. Fellow podcasters, writers, researchers, investigators, and other curious and restless souls interested in a possible collaboration in the future, feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and see you next time.
Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.